0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Chael English Ministry in Sydney. We believe that God speaks through His Word, the Bible. We pray that as you listen, you will hear God's voice and be moved to worship His Son, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to church. If it's your first time here, uh, a special warm welcome to you. It's so good to have you uh, with us at church today on this rainy day. Uh, My name is Matt. I'm the pastor here at Chemistry. And as a church family, we believe that God speaks to us through his word, the Bible. Um, So we look at God's word now. Friends, last week we continued a new study in the book of Romans and today we pick up where we left off uh, which is halfway through Romans chapter one. So today we'll be looking at Romans chapter one verse 18 to verse 32. Uh, Please have your Bibles open there with you as we go through this together. Uh, But if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Uh, The passages will be on the screens as well. Uh, but in order for us to understand god 's word, we need god 's help. so why don't we pray and ask him to help us and i 'm going to actually let you pray. so why don't you pray and ask us the Lord to, to speak to you in a way that you can understand? Make that your prayer let 's pray. Almighty God, our our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've gathered us here today um, as a family of faith so that we might worship you and hear from you and respond to you. Our Father, we pray that today that you would help us to understand rightly the bad news which makes the good news about Jesus so good. Father, we ask that you might help us by your Holy Spirit to see what this passage is saying And to know how it applies to our lives today. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Friends, I have a question for you. My question is this What is Christianity all about? Right, there are billions of Christians around the world today. What is Christianity all about? What's the big point? What's the main idea of Christianity? Well, I'll give you the answer. You don't have to wait till the end of the sermon. I'll give it to you right now. Christianity is all about Jesus, right? Christianity is all about Jesus. At the very core of the Christian message is the message about the great rescue that Jesus has accomplished for us. The good news of Christianity, that is, The gospel, the gospel of Christianity is a message of Jesus dying for our sin and thereby rescuing us, sinners, from God's holy judgment. That is at the core of Christianity. Christianity is all about Jesus rescuing sinners. That's what it's about. That's what church is about. That's what missions is about. That's what life group is about. In two weeks' time, we celebrate Easter. That's what Easter is about. God sending Jesus to rescue sinners from the penalty of sin and from God's holy judgment. Friends, the message of Christianity is that Jesus died for sinners on a cross, but Jesus didn't stay dead. He miraculously rose again from the dead, and Jesus did all this to save us. He did this to save us, to reconcile us back to our Heavenly Father, back to our Maker and Creator, God. Jesus did all of this to rescue us. Friends, If I had to summarize the message of Christianity in one word, it would be rescue. Rescue. Christianity is all about God rescuing sinners through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Friends, and that's the message we saw in the passage you looked at last Sunday in the opening of the book of Romans, in the introduction. Let me read to you again from chapter 1, verse 16 of Romans. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew. Then for the Gentile, that's everyone else. This message of Jesus, it saves people. It rescues people. And Paul thinks that this is great news. It's something not to be embarrassed about. It's something not to be shy about. It's a message of Jesus. It's not to be ashamed of. But friends, if you think about it, it implies some very uncomfortable things about us. It implies that we need saving it implies that you and I are in some kind of danger. It implies that we're in some kind of trouble. Also, if this message of the gospel is true, it implies that we cannot rescue ourselves. Friends, I don't know if you ever said anything like that to a person. I don't know if you've ever been up to a person and said, "Uh, excuse me, can I tell you something? You're in big trouble with God. You're in grave danger with God, and you cannot rescue yourself. You need to be rescued. I don't know if you've ever said that to anyone, but I suspect that most people wouldn't think that that was a very polite thing to say. Would you? Uh, People don't like the idea that they're in deep trouble with God. People don't like the idea that they need saving, that they need to be rescued. A lot of people think that it's actually a rude idea. It's rude to even suggest such a thing. How dare you tell me I'm not okay, right? You don't know me. That's what our society teaches us. And so, most people in our world, they don't think that this message about Jesus is good news at all. Because they don't understand the bad news, they don't appreciate the good news. People are quite happy, in our society anyway, to give their kids Christian names, They don't really mind Christian holidays like Easter and Christmas. They'll take the long weekend. If you work a casual job, you'll take the extra loading, right? People don't really mind sending the kids to a Christian school for good morals and ethics. People don't really mind uh, getting married in a church building because it makes them feel nice. But most people, by and large, are not too keen on this message of rescue through Jesus, this message of salvation through Jesus. Most people in our society think that the whole Jesus thing It's unnecessary, more than unnecessary, actually. Most people think it's just plain rude. Do you see the problem? People don't see the need to be rescued. People don't see the need to be saved, and so they don't see the need for the gospel. And that's why they're sitting at home today and not in here, worshipping their Savior and praising God and hearing from Him in His Word. And so, friends, that's what Paul goes on to address in this next section of Romans. If you like structure, uh, by the way uh, Romans is designed, uh, right through from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through to chapter 3, verse 20, the author, Paul, he goes on to show us our need. That's what he's on about. He goes on to show us our great need. He goes on to show us what we need to be rescued from. That's kind of the big theme over these next couple of weeks. Step by step, Paul, the author, he takes us through every different kind of person you can imagine, and he shows us that we all need to be rescued. That's what Paul's going to be on about. Paul starts off in chapter 1, verse 18, by saying that God's anger is coming. God's anger is coming to all people who deliberately, intentionally, willfully push down, hide, suppress, the truth that they know about God. That's the first point he makes. Paul says God's anger is coming to every single person who deliberately suppresses the truth that they know in themselves about God. Look with me at verse 18. Romans chapter one, verse 18. The wrath of God or the anger of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Well, that's what people need to be rescued from, from God's anger, from God's wrath. That's the danger that people are in. God is angry with them. People are facing God's anger. God is angry with people who wickedly suppress the truth about God. So, who is that? What kind of person is that? Who are these terrible, wicked suppressors? Well, as we read on, we see that Paul is talking about everyone. He says that everyone knows that God is real. Paul says that everyone knows that God is there. Paul says everyone on the face of the planet knows that there is a God who is all-powerful. Even if they've never heard of the Bible or Jesus or the gospel or church or Christianity, even if they've never heard of these things, they already know. Everyone knows, Paul says, because God has shown it to them. God has made it real to them. Firstly, God has made it real to them, that is his existence and power. God has made himself known to people, all people, firstly through his creation. Look with me at verse 19 and 20. Chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. So God's anger is coming on everyone to suppresses the truth about God. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible, invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Firstly, from creation. Secondly, if you turn over the page in your Bibles and look at chapter 2, verse 14, in chapter 2, verse 14, we see that God has also revealed to people the difference between right and wrong. People know What's right, and people know what's wrong. God's requirements are actually written on their hearts, so to speak. Look at me at chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Chapter 2, verse 14, 15 says this. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, that's the Old Testament law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times, even defending them. What's Paul's point? He's saying it's obvious. He's saying it's blatantly obvious. doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you look around at the world, it's perfectly crystal clear. If you look inwardly at your own conscience, it's perfectly clear there is a God. Right, The writer of Ecclesiastes, God has placed eternity in the hearts of man. In every creature, every human being ever to walk the earth, God has placed it in them, the evidence of God's existence. It's perfectly clear that there is a God. It's an all-powerful God. It's an all-knowing God. It's a God who has established right and wrong. A God to whom we are accountable. Every single one of us. And Paul's saying... People know it. They know it. Deep down inside, they know it. They might not admit it. They might not be able to articulate it with words. But deep down, they know. They know that they are, we are, wicked. We don't want to be accountable to God. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. Let me live my life my way. I have my plans, my priorities And so, in our wickedness, we suppress the truth about God, and that makes God really angry. That's what he's saying. When we suppress the truth about God, it makes God really, really angry. And the point of, uh, the point is, chapter 1, verse 20, the point is, no one has any excuse. That's what he's saying. No one has any excuse. No one can claim ignorance about this. No one has any excuse. Every single person deserves to face God's righteous anger. Paul then goes on to describe the kind of cycle or the pattern that people in society get into, the way we suppress the truth about God, and then God angrily responds. Paul gives us the pattern three times, just so that we get very clear about what's going on. Our suppression, God's angry response. Our suppression, God's angry response. Our our suppression, God's angry response. Paul gives it to us three times. First time it's there, it's in verse 21 to 24. Paul's saying, people refuse to thank God. People refuse to praise him. And then, in their so-called wisdom, they create for themselves some gods that they can manipulate for themselves, some gods that they can tell what to do. And they end up in the stupidity of worshiping statues and things. Look with me at verse 21 to 23. That's chapter one, verse 21 to 23. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal being, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. I mean, at one moment's thought, you think about it a little bit, and you realize it's just so ridiculous to worship a statue how stupid to bow down before a lizard, right? It's ridiculous to worship your house in Sydney. It's ridiculous to worship your career progression and to sacrifice your life at the altar of ambition. It's ridiculous to worship a sun or a moon or a lizard to any of these things that can't save you, that can't give you anything apart from fleeting temporary satisfaction. And yet... The Bible is saying that is exactly what millions upon millions, maybe billions of people in the world today are doing. People suppress the truth about God, and instead they worship created things, things that they can control, things that they can invent and make up, a God that they're comfortable with. And God says, that makes me angry. That makes me really angry. And so what God does He gives people over. He gives people over to their own sinful stupidity. He says, you want to reject me and go your own way? You want to be idolatrous? want all the sexual immorality that goes with your idolatry? Okay, I'll leave you to it. I'll leave you to it. You can suffer the consequences. It's like the... Rebellious teenager that says to his parents, I never want to see you again. And the ultimate judgment of the parent is when they say, You will never see me again. It's similar to the judgment of God. Look with me at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. There's the pattern. Can you see it there? Our suppression, God's angry response. In verse 25, we see the pattern again. People suppress the truth they know about God. They swap the truth of worshiping God with the lie of worshiping idols. They swap the truth for a lie. And again, God, in his anger, he gives them over. He gives people over to what they want, which is depravity. He leaves them to swap natural sexuality for unnatural homosexuality. And with all of the sad consequences that follow. Look with me at verse 25 to 27. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error and in case we haven 't fully got it yet, in verse twenty eight we see the pattern repeated again: People suppress what they know about God, and God gives them over to all kinds of terrible sins. Look at me at verse twenty eight to thirty one verse twenty eight to thirty one Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And so, Paul summarizes. Everyone knows that there is a God. They know that there is a God who's established right and wrong. They know that there is a God to whom they'll be ultimately accountable to one day, but they refuse to submit, and they applaud it when other people refuse to submit. They have things like Mardi Gras. They have things like Purple Day and Rainbow Flag Day, and all kinds of celebrations of people's rejection of God, and people's rebellion from God. In short, humanity is living in rebellion against God, and I recognize, that's not a popular message, but it's the truth. I recognize, some of you might disagree, Very early on, as a Christian, I learned a very important life lesson. And here's a freebie. You don't have to pay for this one. Very early on, I realized that when I disagree with the Bible, it's because I'm wrong. It's because I'm wrong. Humanity is living in rebellion against God. Look with me at verse 32. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death... They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Wow, it's a it's a confronting passage, right? If you're visiting our church for the first time today, perhaps it's not the sort of passage that you would expect it to hear. I'll be honest with you, there are heaps of churches and there are heaps of denominations that have actually banned this passage. I was speaking with another pastor earlier this week, and he was telling me that in his previous church, uh, the second half of Romans chapter 1 is part of their banned list. Like, you can't read it in church, and you can't preach from it. If you do, you face disciplinary action. And just a quick side note, friends, it's actually part of the reason why it's so much better to work through books of the Bible instead of following a made-up thing like a church calendar or a church lectionary or a church preaching plan, because that's exactly the essence of idolatry, isn't it? Think about it. You make up something, like a church calendar or a preaching plan or lectionary, and then you make up a God that you're comfortable with. That's the essence of idolatry. You make up a God who never says anything you don't want to hear, right? Thousands and thousands of Christians and churches will refuse to read from passages in church just because they disagree. It makes no sense. Since when were you God? If God says this is my truth and he gives it to us as a whole, as a unit, we call that the Bible, who are you to pick and choose what you like and don't like? When we have things like a preaching plan or a lectionary, all of a sudden, we, ministry leaders, whoever it might be, all of a sudden, we're trying to make a God that we can form a God that we can manipulate, a God that never says anything we don't want to hear, a God of love and peace and justice and these things. Friends, I think it's an absolute tragedy that there are thousands, maybe millions, of so-called Christians in the world, get this, who will love what the Bible says about serving the poor, about doing justice in the world, about equality, but they will hate what the Bible says about appropriate sexual relationships, They'll hate what the Bible says about gender roles. So if you're a Christian and if Jesus is your Lord and you like some parts of the Bible and not others, let me urge you, repent because you're wrong. God wants you to bow before his word and to say God is right. I think it's so hypocritical. When I, when I look at the modern age of Christians, I think it's so hip, there are so many social justice warriors, right? There are so many causes that we can rally behind. It seems to me now that every week there's a new cause. You know, There's every week there's a new politically loaded cause that you can get. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to rally. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to be a voice for the voiceless and the marginalized. And as Christians, we should be. But I'm just saying, it would be very hypocritical of us to support one thing, but to ignore other things, like what the Bible says about homosexuality. It's so easy for weak Christians to go with the flow of our society and to be shy and to be ashamed of what God says in his word. So many churches, even here in our country, they'll embrace the love of God without submitting under the holiness of God. Friends, you see, that's why here at this church, we work through books of the Bible because that way we can't avoid the uncomfortable bits. Because that way, in in good Reformed tradition, we work through books of the Bible so that your pastor isn't choosing the agenda, your denomination isn't choosing the agenda. God is choosing the agenda as we preach through books of the Bible. Just like Paul says in Acts 20, we as Christians, we need to declare the whole counsel of God, not just the bits that we like. Here at Chemistry, friends, our promise to you, our commitment is, we will always, by and large, preach through books of the Bible Because we're fully convinced that each and every passage in the Bible is God's Word. Each passage in the Bible is given to us by God as His inspired Word. He has revealed Himself to us. And that way, we keep ourselves accountable to not making and inventing our own gods. And so here we are today, stuck with this confronting passage in Romans chapter 1. Friends, it seems to me, by way of application... It seems to me what we've read today, there are three big issues that we need to talk about. Three important issues. First, there's a the whole idea of God being angry in the first place. We've got to talk about that. Second, there's the way that God manifests his anger, giving people over to their sin. And third, there's the idea that people know about God even without hearing about God or the Bible or Jesus, and that they are without excuse. Three very important concepts here in this passage that we need to understand and submit to and agree with. So let's look at them one by one. First, the idea of God's anger. The idea of God's anger. The truth is, most people don't like the idea that God could get angry. People say that it's unworthy of God. They say it's incompatible with the biblical concept of God. People say that it's unworthy of God. It's incompatible with the biblical concept that God is love. I remember a few years ago, um, I was speaking with an elder from another church, a Presbyterian church, and she said to me, Matt, I just read the Westminster Confession of Faith for the first time the other day. She's been an elder for decades, but she's just read the Westminster Confession of Faith, which I found really weird. And she said to me, I was horrified. She said, it made me cry. She said to me, Matt, do you know That the Westminster Confession of Faith is so narrow, it actually says that people who don't believe in Jesus are facing God's anger and are excluded from heaven? She said, I cannot believe that. I've lived too long. I've seen too much to believe in such a narrow and an angry God. Well, it all sounds very loving, right? It sounds very tolerant. sounds very progressive, right? But this passage in Romans 1, it makes it crystal clear. It makes complete nonsense of that Christian message. The Christian message does not make sense unless God is angry at some things. Because Jesus died and rose to save us, to rescue us. If we didn't need saving, if we didn't need rescuing, then Jesus' death was the most ridiculous act of foolishness. What a waste. What was he doing? Dying in agony and shame on a cross to rescue us when we didn't need rescuing in the first place. What was he doing dying on a cross, praying, is there any other way? And the Father, Father God is saying no, as if there was another way all along, as if people were all fine all along. The only reason the Christian message has any relevance at all is because we need rescuing. And the Bible is clear that what we need to be rescued from is God's holy anger on our sin. You can't water this down. The Bible is crystal clear. God's righteous and holy anger against our sinfulness and our selfishness. And just a side note here, over the years, I've realized that being angry is not incompatible with love. Because I love my wife, I will be angry at anything that threatens her. Right? Think about it. Being angry is not incompatible with love. Ask any parent you know. They'll tell you that being angry isn't incompatible with love. Every parent gets angry with their kids once in a while. That's just parenting. Guys, it's only because they love their children and they take them seriously, that they get angry. They don't get angry with other people's kids. Why? Because they don't care about them enough to get angry. It's not worth it. It's only because parents love their children that they take them seriously enough to actually get angry with them. Friends, anger is not incompatible with love. And that's the first issue. Friends, whether you like it or not, whether you think it's rude or not, God's anger is real. And we need rescuing. The second issue is the way that God manifests his anger. This business about God handing people over to their sin. And, and I think this is a, it's a difficult concept to, to, to swallow. There are a lot of churches and preachers who will water this down and they'll reword it. But don't get it twisted. It says what it says. The word is literally, God hands them over. In Greek, it means, God hands them over. That's what it means. You can't get this twisted. When I think of God's anger, right, as a Christian, I think of things like final judgment, like hell, death, things like that, that kind of stuff. And those concepts are here in this passage, for sure. Like chapter 1, verse 32 talks about our sin-deserving death. That's an eternal death. Chapter 2, verse 5 talks about us storing up wrath against ourselves for the day of God's wrath. Like that kind of final judgment stuff is in here but that's not the focus of our passage today, is it? That's not really what it's talking about. God's anger here, what we've read today, is expressed in God giving people over to their sin. Picture that. It's not what you might expect. And sadly, it's a message that a lot of modern churches neglect to teach. But then, it does make sense when you think of the God who gives people over to their sin. I was at Rhodes Shopping Center a few days ago, a few weeks ago, and I was just sitting on the benches because I was walking around looking for something, and because I'm fat, I got tired, I sat down, needed to catch a breath. So I'm sitting on the bench, and I'm just looking at the kids playing on that little jungle gym inside, inside the shopping center, right, in the, the playground thingy. I'm sitting there and I'm watching these kids play. They're so cute. And I was watching as a mum was talking to a little girl and she was urging her to follow her, right? Like, come with mummy. let's go, it's time to go home. It's, if you're a parent, it's probably the story of your life. You know, the mom wanted to take her daughter home or get a milkshake or go to Macca's or wherever she was going, I don't know. But the little girl was insisting that she had to stay, that she had to stay and continue to play in the jungle gym. Over and over and over again, her mom called to her until finally the mum said, okay, Gracie, I'm going, mommy doesn't care, see you later, you do whatever you want. And she walked away. Now, I'm not a parent, but my guess is it probably doesn't always work, right? I'm sure as they get older, they figure it out and they're like, yeah, they're not really going to abandon me. Um, They they don't really mean what they say, right? Think about it, if you're a parent, you don't mean what you say. I mean, you possibly couldn't leave a three-year-old to face the consequences of their own actions, right? But you get the point. You see what the mom's trying to do. The parent is threatening to give the child over to the consequences. You do what you want, but you're stuck with the consequences and you miss out on all the good things that I've got in store for you. That's what God does. He gives us over to our sin. He leaves us to face the consequences and that way we miss out on the good things that our heavenly father has in store for us. It's actually a pretty interesting way of looking at sin, I think, a very helpful way. People think sin is freedom. People think sexual immorality is sexual freedom. People think homosexuality is sexual freedom. I was speaking at a camp a few months ago, and I was talking with a young university-aged couple, and they were telling me that they have sex. And I said, are you married yet? No, are you Christians? They said, yes. Do you believe the Bible? Yes. And I said, do you know that you're in sin? And both of them refused to agree with me. Uh, and I said, you actually, I don't care what you guys do, but you actually, can't you see the problem? You're, you're, you're in sin against God Almighty. He's told you quite clearly that's the sin of fornication. Sex is God's gift to those who are married. So it's not your gift. Why are you taking it? Why are you stealing? Why are you in sin? And they were saying to me that I'm too old school, and I think that's stupid. God's word has eternal relevance. The culture change. We change. God's word never changes. The relevance to us never changes. God doesn't say to us Christians, obey my sexual laws if the culture deems it appropriate. But let me ask you, since when was culture above scripture for the Christians? Seriously, you look at all human ages, God's word always came first. We as Christians, we should use God's word to view the culture, to critique culture, to be wise with how we engage with and interact with and live in this worldly culture. And you can fall off either side of the cliff. It's very You can either fall into it and become so progressive and that way your life looks exactly like the pagan world and you look just like a non-Christian. Or you can fall off the other side and and be Amish and run away from society and get rid of your iPhone and live in the bush. But both extremes are wrong. To be a biblical Christian means you read your Bible, right? And and you get educated by God in His Word. And you're you're in the world but not of the world. You, You understand the God of salvation and you understand that you don't live. You don't answer to Satan anymore. You answer to God. He's given you a new way to live. So his word all of a sudden dictates and determines how you live your life. And and that couple said to me, they go, you're too old school. You're not progressive enough. You're not modern enough. Friends, people think homosexuality is sexual freedom and open-mindedness and being progressive and being inclusive. But these things, Paul is saying, these things are actually the very judgment of God. This is God punishing people's sins. That's what Paul's saying. People think they're living the good life. But they're blinded by their sin to see that they're actually wallowing in sin and shame and guilt and misery. They're hating and hurting one another. They're missing out on the good life that God has for his people. And unless they are rescued, they're going to miss out on the best life, eternal life. That's the second issue. Of God giving people over in his anger at their sin. The third issue, the third and final issue here in our passage today is that everyone knows about God. And so everyone is without excuse. That's what Paul says the words without excuse. When I talk to people about Jesus, a very common objection I hear is this, and you might have heard this too. People say, yeah, Matt, you go on about this rescue stuff. You go on about this gospel stuff. But let me ask you this. What about the people who have never heard about Jesus? What about them? Is God going to judge them? What about the tribal people deep in the Amazon? You heard that? What about the tribal people in Erie and Jaya? How can God judge them? How can you say that they can't be saved? They don't have the gospel. And if I'm honest with you, I think it's a stupid question. The fact that I'm talking with them right here and now, it's an irrelevant question. It proves that it's irrelevant. I mean, you and me, you've just heard about Jesus. I've just told you about Jesus. And that's usually the answer I give to them. Usually I say, look, you let God and his people worry about the people in Erie and Jaya. You let God and his people worry about the people in, in deep in the Amazon that don't have the gospel yet. You, you have just heard about Jesus. What are you going to do about him? But then even though I generally try and avoid the issue, if I'm honest with you, it is a real issue. To be fair, it is a real issue. What is going to happen to all those people who have never heard of Jesus and who don't have a chance to hear about Jesus? Can God really judge people just because they haven't heard about Jesus, just because they don't know Jesus? Can God really send people to hell for that? Can God really judge people based on the basis of what they don't know? Is ignorance of the law really no excuse? How can that be just? How can that be loving or fair? And if people who haven't heard about Jesus aren't going to be judged, logically, think about it, right? Follow me. Why on earth should we tell them about Jesus, right? Think about it. I mean, why should we spend all this money and training and send missionaries out to them? Aren't we actually making it worse for them? They're okay as they are, living in their jungle, and then we send missionaries out to them so they hear about Jesus, they reject the gospel, they go to hell anyway. Aren't they better off left alone? Missionaries are unpopular enough as it is, aren't they? Anthropologists, uh, that is people, those who study humans and human societies, anthropologists, they tell us that missionaries are criminals against human societies. They go into these, quote, pristine tribes where everyone's happy, And they wreck their culture by imposing Christianity upon them. Why don't we just leave those poor people alone? That's what they say. Friends, it's a real issue. And here in this passage, we get God's real answer. God will not judge people on the basis of what they don't know. God will judge people on the basis of what they do know. But that's no comfort. Because people do know that there is a God. All people know there is a God. All people know that there's a difference between right and wrong. All people know that they are held accountable to God. But people from every culture, tribe, language, from everywhere, people suppress that knowledge. That's what we do as sinners. They push it down until they can't even think about it anymore. And Paul's saying they are without excuse when they stand before God Almighty. And the fact is, friends, this is proven time and time and time again where new tribes of people are discovered. Did you know that in the whole history of the human human existence, no one has ever discovered an atheist tribe? Did you know in the whole history of the world, no one has ever discovered an agnostic tribe? What you always find is people who worship something, idols, ancestors, land, something. In the whole history of the world, no one has ever found a moral tribe. Everywhere you go, you find people who know the right from wrong. There's a right way to live and a wrong way to live. Every single tribe, in their own unique way, they've got rules about right and wrong. Actually, to be honest, they're actually very similar rules, actually, across humanity, which makes sense. But wherever you go, you will find that people actually break the rules. You find sexual immorality and envy, and murder, and strife, and deceit, and malice, and you find people making each other miserable, and eating each other, and so on. Friends, there's no such thing as the noble savage. Savages are just plain savage. And Paul's saying they've got no excuse before God. Like you and me, they are people who have rejected God and are suffering the consequences of his anger. Like you and me, people who haven't heard about Jesus need to be rescued. So we do need to send missionaries. It's desperate. If this is true, and it is true because it's in the Bible, it really ups the ante, doesn't it? We're surrounded by people who are not okay. We're surrounded by people upon whom God's anger is coming. They need to know. And we need to be brave enough to tell, we need to be loving enough to tell them. And so we do need to send missionaries. And more of you need to go into gospel ministry. And we do need to support church plants across the seas. And we do need to preach the gospel overseas, but also here locally as well. Because it's the only way people can be rescued. Friends, despite what I'm saying, today is the Lord's Day. And every Sunday we do celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. We celebrate that salvation that Jesus has won for us is like a precious, precious jewel. But do you know how they display jewels? You know how they display jewels so that you can see just how really beautiful it is? What they do is they put the jewel up against a black background, black velvet or something like that. And friends, that is what this passage in Romans 1 is doing for us. This passage in Romans 1, second half of Romans chapter 1, it's like the black velvet behind the diamond. Friends, you and I will never understand how precious the death and resurrection of Jesus is unless we understand what Paul is talking about here in Romans 1. Friends, you and I will never appreciate what it means to be rescued unless you realize you need to be rescued. Friends, you will never appreciate what it means to be rescued unless you realize the great danger that you are in because of your sin unless we realize that God's righteous and holy anger is actually coming against all our godlessness and wickedness, we're never going to cherish the gospel. Friends, I'm convinced some of us don't cherish the gospel because we too easily forget the bad news. We get caught up with the busyness of life. We just run from one emergency to the next. We go from work to work, assignment to assignment. We don't ever stop to think about our sin. And we're not led from that point to think about God's rescue for our sin. So what do you think, friends? Is this a rude passage for you? Is is this passage irrelevant for you? Friends, my hope and prayer is that as we look at this word together, that we would appreciate our need, that we would appreciate the glorious gospel that we celebrate, that we would appreciate the glorious jewel In Jesus dying and rising again for us. And appreciate how precious it is that Jesus really did die and rise again for you and for me. If you're here today and if you're not yet a Christian, you need to know that verse 28 to 32 is talking about you. He's talking about your sinfulness. Because of the holiness of God, he cannot just accept you as you are a sinner. But... Because of God's great love for you, for sinners like you and me, he has given to you and me his one and only son to die for our sin. If you turn your back on your sinfulness and if you rely on Jesus to save you, then God's promise for you is this. I will save you. That's the promise. If you're here today and if Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, God is inviting you today to examine the bad news and to look at the good news that he has provided Jesus in the gospel, saving you from your sin, from an eternity in hell. And God says, repent and believe in Jesus. Rely on him and you will be saved. That's the message of Christianity. Friends, my hope and prayer for us is that we will be a church flame that would know the bleak darkness of our sin and God's wrath. And that we will look at God's solution. And that we'll be moved to gratitude and worship and obedience and delighting in him. Let's pray. Our gracious God, our our loving heavenly Father, we thank you so much that even though we are fully deserving of your righteous anger, that even though we are without excuse before you, that while we were still sinners, you demonstrated your love for us. Lord, we thank you so much that you gave Jesus to die and rise again so that we might be rescued from your judgment. Our Father, please help us to appreciate the desperate need we have and the desperate need we have. Lord, please help us to be filled with thanks and love and admiration towards you. Help us, Lord, to understand how precious our salvation really is. Lord, fill us with the joy of knowing this salvation today and right through our lives and into eternity. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.